something bad to the Russians. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for the Heather McCoy Show. This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 10 o'clock. Coming up next is the Heather McCoy Show. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue unless otherwise noted. The Finance Committee meets on the third Thursday at 4.30 p.m. Give me an F! Tune in August 16th from noon till 4 p.m. for KBOO's Celebration of Woodstock 50 Years Later. Featuring previously unreleased music and more from the original festival tapes. Plus, recent interviews with the voices of participants and musicians who attended the festival, including Country Joe of Country Joe and the Fish and Yorma Kaukinen of the original Jefferson Airplane. That's August 16th, starting at noon, for KBOO's celebration of Woodstock 50 years later. Tune in. KBOO Community Radio is an orgulloso copatrocinador de Unity. Una noche de hip-hop feminista Latinx. El martes 20 de agosto a las 9 p.m. en el Dog for Lunch en Portland. Unity presenta a las artistas Mare, advertencia lírica de Oaxaca, Valentina Peralta de Chile y las artistas de Portland, Kayla J y DJ La Pauchi. Este evento también es patrocinado por Colectivo Ruda y Hoop Hoop Creative. Nuevamente. La mula no era arisca, pero la hicieron. La niña no era feminista, pero aquí nos vemos. Unity, una noche de hip hop feminista Latinx. Próximo martes 20 de agosto desde las 21 horas en el Dog Fear Lounge. 8.30 y Burnside Street en Portland. Este es un evento para mayores de 21 años. Encuentra más información en kboo.fm en el lado derecho de la página de inicio, bajo eventos de la comunidad. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from Brunchbox, featuring breakfast, burgers, beer, and more daily from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Serving Portland at 620 Southwest 9th Avenue, downtown, and their new location at 676 Southeast Morrison Street. More information is available online at brunchboxpdx.com.
Heather McCoy Show. Welcome to the Heather McCoy Show. Later on in the hour, I'll be talking with Kathy Mariah Carlson about her volunteer work at the border as part of an organization called Annunciation House. Then rounding out the hour, we'll have Aaron Brown join us to discuss the deadline for public comments about the proposed Rose Quarter Freeway expansion, plus a grab bag of other news items. But first, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, recently released a spring 2019 flood probability map. It shows that the majority of the eastern part of the country is at risk for some flooding, and the state of Oregon is at risk for some minor flooding from the record amounts of snowpack built up over the winter. Joining me now to discuss this is Andy Bryant. He is a hydrologist at the National Weather Service to discuss the implications of this map. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. First, I wanted to discuss the and put some context behind the terms that NOAA uses in the maps. Uh, what criteria does NOAA use to determine the three categories of flooding for minor, moderate, and major? <clears throat> Those categories are determined on a location basis. Just to use a local example that people would be familiar with here, if we took the Willamette River at Portland, um, we have a minor, moderate, and major flood category. And major flooding is, um, that's the kind of situation where we're dealing with water getting into downtown Portland. And, you know, similar to what we had uh, for those folks who have lived in the area for many years, uh, February of 1996 was the last really big flood event that affected um most of the region and that was a situation where there were you know extra reinforcements built along the seawall to keep water from getting into downtown and there was widespread flooding in places like Oregon City and all over the Willamette Valley and throughout much of the Pacific Northwest so um, major flooding is typically where you're you're getting water into businesses and homes and affecting a lot of roads and that kind of thing. So I'm going to go to the kind of the other extreme, minor flooding Yeah, um, is typically going to be um, maybe just uh, property that's uh, in the lowest areas along the river, uh, maybe some roads that are in particularly low areas, and um, the impacts with minor flooding are typically pretty limited um, so it's that's not the type of flooding that's going to garner national news coverage that kind of thing um, so then the moderate is somewhere in between that usually there's some impact to structures and more roads um, but it's it's determined based on experience of what's happened in the past and it's um, not just developed by the National Weather Service independently. We actually work, we partner with local officials to develop, develop and refine these flood categories. And they're not set in stone. They can be changed if um, development conditions change, that kind of thing. So we really, you know, get concerned about, uh, especially with the major flooding that's um, certainly what we've seen, um, like what we've seen in Nebraska over the past couple of weeks, and what we see in a lot of the, the Midwest right now. I, I, I was asking that question because minor and flooding does include minimal or no property damage, but I was just wondering what minimal is, because one time I was living in a place where the toilet flooded. It was only an ankle deep worth of water, but it disrupted my life, and I had the you know, I was almost made homeless from that event, so that's kind of why I kind of I had that question. If you get any water in a house, that's a major flood. Okay. So, you know, now, yeah, it, it would just be more limited um, impacts, and typically, you know, unless unless a home has been built in a really vulnerable location. Um, you're typically not going to see flooding in homes in okay. minor flood. Uh, the map indicates that uh, areas of which have a 50% chance uh, to flood from March and April to th 2019 from uh, this few science classes and stat classes I took in college, we used to have something 
Reese's test hypothesis at a 95% confidence level. Uh, is this lower level of um, confidence just uh, that public agencies are um, more aware uh, for a response? Yeah. There's a lot of factors that affect whether or not flooding happens. And so we're we're just trying to highlight parts of the country where the existing conditions and what we've had so far this year with snow and rainfall and uh, you know soil saturation are those conditions that are favorable um, for potential for flooding yeah I think if we if we only highlighted places that we were 95 percent confident that it would you know be a much lower area and we're trying to just make folks aware of uh, the potential for flooding uh, certainly is, you know it's not a it's not a warning it's not a you know this is imminently going to happen um, it's just drawing attention to the potential now the the alarming part of the map is almost the entirety of the eastern part of the United States is at risk for at least minor flood risk. Is this due to downstream flooding just from the major waterways of the northern Mississippi, Missouri, and Red River of the north, or is it aggregate flooding from local watersheds as well? Yeah, it's flooding from local watersheds as well. You know, the Mississippi drains, I don't know, probably more than a third of the continental U.S. and so you're covering a lot of ground with that. And um, since uh, middle of January, um, there's been a lot of snow across kind of the northern plains and the upper Midwest, and um, a lot of rain across the southern plains and um, the deep south. And, you know, and then a lot of that is extended even into eastern uh, states so it's just it's just been a very wet um, couple of months across most of the continental U.S. and um, it comes at a you know coming at the end of the winter then we're getting into the time of year now where we can have pretty rapid changes into much warmer weather patterns and also still have significant precipitation events. So it's just a, a situation where there's a pretty high potential for flooding um, across most of the Mississippi watershed, you know, which extends all the way from the eastern slopes of the Rockies out, you know, eastward towards the Ohio Valley and the Tennessee Valley and those kind of places. So a huge amount of area kind of the northern half of that whole area has had a lot of snowpack over the past uh, couple months especially so that's the reason for the concern and there's already major flooding going on in a lot of those areas because there's already been um, you know rapid snow melts and some areas of pretty heavy rain um, so the the spring flood outlook is issued every year you know in um, early March early to mid-March and this year uh, it so happened that really the ball was already rolling with uh, significant flooding in a lot of the Midwest so you know it's kind of in some ways I guess this year we're just highlighting the continued potential for more flooding um, as we go through the next couple of months. As a hydrologist, what patterns are you seeing in the flows of watersheds as the effects of global warming is making themselves more known in recent years? You know, you can't really draw connections on a year-to-year basis. I think when you're talking about climate change, you really need to look at long-term trends. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that's just been interesting over the past several years is that one of the, the big things that we look at with weather patterns is what's happening with the jet stream. And that's kind of really just a concept that we use to describe kind of the track of weather systems around
globe and you know for here for the, the for North America you know we have a couple of different jet streams that will typically deliver storms to different parts of the country and the the big thing that we've noticed um, or I guess I'm speaking from my my own experience is that we we will set up what what I would call a, a high amplitude jet stream where there's big fluctuations where maybe it goes up into way up into Alaska or Canada and then drops way down you know across the Midwest down into the southeast and um, rather than just kind of tracking across Pacific Northwest and and the upper Midwest and so what happens with that high amplitude pattern is that we'll set up areas that are maybe warm, warmer than average and drier than average for an extended period of time, while other areas maybe are much colder or wetter than average over extended periods of time. And, and what we've seen a lot over the past couple of months is these, these patterns set up where, you know, you kind of get locked into a situation for two, three, or four weeks at a time. And um, we've seen that in other years recently, and um, that can be a big factor with drought and, you know, maybe really low snowpack in our mountains or uh, maybe result in really cold temperatures and, and high snowpack. So I think that's, you know, I'm, I don't know what the connection is to long-term climate change, if there even is any, but it just seems that that's been something pretty noticeable the last several years is um, even here in the Pacific Northwest, we, we've had less of our kind of typical storm patterns that where we'll get just cool temperatures and, you know, a storm every few days move through the region where we'll tend to, um, we'll tend to get these patterns set up for longer periods of time and are, are more dramatic. One of the things that was released as well is a calculated soil moisture map, and it shows that the Pacific Northwest is drier than usual. Is that going to help somewhat mitigate the flood effects is the fact that our, our, our soil is drier and it's going to be able to saturate more water coming down from Lake Mount Hood, for example? Yes, and you know, I would I would highlight that um, really, uh, here in the Portland area and in the Willamette Valley, there um, there isn't a risk of spring flooding. Really, the the risk area is more east of the Cascades um, and across much of central and eastern Oregon. And um, throughout the Pacific Northwest, though, we do have um, low soil moisture, and that's just the result of um, prolonged period of, you know, below average precipitation. Um, so prior to, honestly, prior to February, we were getting really concerned about uh, another drought spring and summer here in the Pacific Northwest. And February pretty dramatically changed the situation um, because we got so much snow in the mountains and uh, much, you know, we had cooler than average temperatures and so it really changed the picture. But prior to, well, like coming into this, this winter, you know, back last summer and fall, we had been really dry and uh, stream flow was really low, soil moisture was low, and that continued through much of the winter. Even with the snowpack that we built across much of the state and the Pacific Northwest, we still have those soil moisture conditions. And so I think what we're going to see is that as the snow melts over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to see more of that just go into the soil and less of it turn into runoff in the rivers. So that does help somewhat to mitigate concerns about flooding. In the eastern part of the country where the soil moisture is almost at the 99 percentile in a lot of places, um, because the soil is so saturated and water can't make its way down to the aquifer, are they going to have a, a water, uh, a drinking water issue later on from this? Or, You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. That's going to be real 
site dependent on you know what the connection is and the uh, what type of geology they have and that kind of thing so i i think it's really hard to make any kind of generalizations about that i guess i would say that if if the soil is very saturated that that means that there's already a lot of water in the soil and some of that is going to work itself into the you know the deep aquifers and so that would generally actually be overall beneficial in terms of you know recharge to aquifers and um, kind of deeper soil moisture will the acre feet of water flowing from the major waterways like the mississippi is that going to be enough where it's just going to overwhelm the flood protections currently put in place well i think we've already seen that happen yeah places and you know it's yeah that's going to be a concern all the way through probably at least may if not june and then then the problem is is that like may june july is actually can be the wetter part of the year for a lot of the midwest so when you think about you know conditions for the missouri and ohio and mississippi rivers i think that's you know this isn't just a problem that's going to go away in the next couple of weeks um it's going to be a concern all the way through the spring and possibly into the summer but again there's you know, no guarantees because it's all all going to depend on how things play out with the temperatures and precipitation. Um, when we get, you know, sh- big spikes in temperatures and we quickly melt off a lot of the snowpack, that can be very problematic. Or, you know, if we're maybe getting some snow melt and then all of a sudden we, we add quite a bit of rain to that, also a a recipe for major problems so um so that's what what people are going to be watching for over the next couple of months and there's there's enough history to look at to know that that's uh, there's a high potential for that to happen so um you know that's the reason for concern uh through the rest of the spring and really into the early part of the summer at least is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with well, um, I guess I would say, you know, uh, be, be thankful for the fact that here in the Pacific Northwest, relative to other parts of the country, we've actually had it relatively mild, uh, and we're not dealing with a lot of the problems. You know, you even think about what's happened in California over the past couple of months with really heavy rain and landslides and debris flows, and now this, you know, major flooding that's going on in the Midwest. So, it doesn't doesn't mean that we're not with without our own concerns here in the Pacific Northwest, but they're much less severe than what we're seeing in other parts of the country. And um, you know, one of the things I always just like to remind folks about is when we're talking about flooding, that the the biggest problem that we see that people get themselves into is when they drive into flooded areas. Um, that's we've seen. You know, just here in, in uh, the Portland area, Northwest Oregon, um, over the past several years, there have been several people who have died or uh, been injured when they've driven into areas that they thought, you know, weren't that deep and, and they got themselves into trouble. So we have a, a slogan that's kind of catchy, but I think makes the point. It says, turn around, don't drown. So, um, you know, for folks that maybe you're maybe going to be traveling to areas that are dealing with flood concerns you know around the country or or face that here in the northwest at some point in the future um just just be safe sounds like a good advice my guest has been andy bryant he's a hydrologist with the national weather service thanks for being on the show today you are welcome Yeah, I'm 
Welcome back to the Heather McCoy Show. Joining me on the line is Kathy Mariah Carlson of the AnnunciationHouse.org, a volunteer group who is providing the basic needs for ICE detainees who are released from ICE custody. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's been getting widespread coverage over the Trump administration has declared war on immigrants. What does Annunciation House do? Well, um, ICE releases so many people every day, and they actually get in touch with Annunciation House because Annunciation House has been doing this work for not exactly like it is now, but for the past 40 years, they've been helping the immigrant population. But now we're dealing with refugees, and so ICE calls Annunciation House and tells them how many people they'll be releasing, and then Annunciation House tells them which locations that they'll be um, sheltered at. And what our organization does is we usually, we have them for uh, about 24 hours. They, they come off the buses and um, they, the little kids especially, those little kids, three, four, two years old, they come off those buses and their eyes are big and wide like saucers. And they are so scared. You can see it in their eyes, like little deer in the headlights. And they're they're unkempt. They're dirty. They're hungry. So they get to us, and um, we feed them right away. And then we get them registered, and then um, help them contact their families, so their families can arrange transportation to wherever they are in the country, which might be. You know, it could be anywhere in the country, California, New York, wherever. They call their families, and the families arrange to get them there by plane or by bus. And then they get back to us with confirmation numbers and things like that. And then after they get all registered, then they go into a big uh, clothing room, and they get to pick out all new clothes, new socks and underwear, shoes if they need them. Um, they get hygiene supplies and towels, and they get to go take a shower, which um, many of them haven't had in a long time. 
and um, and then they come back and they get their bedding for their cot with the big dormitory and they stay there and then you know we we feed them you know three meals a day usually a lot of them only are with us for 24 hours or even less you know once they get that ticket you know confirmed and we help them with transportation to the airport and help them get through you know take them to the get them tickets take them to the through security you know get them to their gate safely and try to leave them a little note that they can show to people that says i don't speak english can you please help me find my next plane because a lot of them have to change planes in other locales where here most of the population speaks spanish but you know once they get up to boston or you know philadelphia or chicago they might not have that so we give them a little note they can carry we pack them um, a care package to go on the plane or the bus you know that has food and snacks so that they have food to eat because most of them have no money and so that's basically what we do we can give them a little bit of medical care you know if they have a cold or fevers or things like that sometimes we have to transport somebody to the hospital if they're really sick so walk um, us to the process like when so the part of the immigration detainees that i'm familiar with is detainees that are in ice custody and they're waiting yeah. a trial so are you getting people that have just been picked up and then they're released and then they're awaiting a trial within certain parts of the United States? Or where in this long line of uh, custody do you guys fall into? Right. Well, they've, most of them have been in custody for at least three days with ICE uh, in some sort of detention. And, and, the, and it sounds, I mean, I've heard the stories of, it sounds horrible. Um, you know, there's men, women, children, lots of babies, lots of babies. Uh, they're all put into, you know, like one room that has no, no windows and uh, lights are on all the time. The only thing in this room is a toilet that has like a half wall around it. And one man told us this story. They, they kept putting more and more and more people in, and they were, they were begging them, please don't put any more people in here. So they got so many people they couldn't even sit down or lay down. So they just kind of like one guy would lean up against the wall kind of in a sitting position and mm-hmm. put his back against the wall and the next person would sit on his lap and the next person. And they also told us that, I've heard this story more than once, all they get to eat is one frozen burrito in 24 hours. They got well, they, they're three, if they were there three days, they got three burritos. And these burritos are not heated up frozen ones. They're still frozen when yeah. they give them to them. And a lot of the kids can't eat them. They're sick when they get come to us. They've got stomach problems. Of course, the stress. Uh, I don't know. I forgot the rest of your question. <laughs> so basically, when the ICE the releases them, are they awaiting court dates or further legal yes. action? Or Oh, okay. Right. And so when yeah, they have a, they have their person that they're going to contact. Let's say, let's say that person's in New York. So they, they're, they'll have a, a date set. Like some of them are two weeks out. Some of them are a month out. Um, they have a date that they're supposed to show up at that immigration court when they get to their locale. So they're here. There's, they're asylum seekers and they're waiting to be heard. So the Trump administration has been notorious for trying to cut down on the number of claims of refugee status. Have you noticed that as well uh, with your work in in this group? I, they're they're all refugees, as far as I know. I mean, I don't know if they. I know that they're still separating some families at the border. We hear those stories all the time, of children being, you know, sent off to detention camps in in uh, Florida. One the other day that was fourteen, he got separated from his mom and his little. Uh, another sibling that was younger and they they sent the 14 year old off another one was a wife and a husband with two children who were separated one child went with the dad and he came to us and he didn't know where his wife and the other child went so they they're definitely separating families you know not i don't think to the extent that they were but yeah it's pretty sad so what can kb listeners do to help if you've got two weeks out of your life that you want to spend doing something that's really hard and 
really exhausting but incredibly rewarding. You could come and volunteer. We the volunteers, you know, I think I kind of told you what we do. We help help with the meals. We help get them clothes. We help take them to the airport. There's tons of work to do, and we we definitely need more volunteers. And you know, if somebody wants to to donate financially, that would be amazing. You could send things in the mail, but it's going to cost more probably than we could get it for down here. But little things that they need, <laughs> you'd be surprised how many people ask for shoelaces. We can't keep them and, and deodorant. We can't keep either one of those things. Coloring books for kids. Oh, hats, warm hats, um, jackets, you know, because we're still sending them to really cold climates. And we don't have enough of those because people that donate locally, they don't have the kind of clothes that you need for up north. So I'm um, not sure how efficient it would be to send those, but they, they definitely, we definitely have a need for that. This organization, even though it's been there for 40 years, has no permanent funding sources. They totally depend on spontaneous donations. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't know how they make it happen every month, but they do. And so if, if you, if your heart calls you, maybe you could help that way. You're actually from Hood River, and you're volunteering down in, in El Paso, Texas. Um, what are some of the horror stories that you're hearing from uh, the border? Um, well, um, well, the other night, one of the volunteers came in and said she'd been past the border wall, like in this one particular spot, several times that day. And there was a, a group of, of refugees on the other side of the wall. And they were at a, a place that's usually a gate, but it's been closed. And they wanted to, you know, turn themselves in. And the Border Patrol had passed them several times, but they were ignoring them. I guess they maybe thought they would go away or something. And um, so our volunteers saw them, and she was concerned because they'd been there all day and into the night and it was getting cold and she knew they probably hadn't eaten or had any water so she says well, let's get some sandwiches and water and take over there and so she said she tells me on the way out the door she goes well what I was thinking was that we could stand on top of my car and pitch this stuff over this 20 foot fence <laughs> I said oh okay I said can we get arrested for doing this and she said well if we do my community will bail us out this lady is a nun, and she's 80 years old. <laughs> going out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, we get there to this place, and so I guess the news people had heard about this group of people. So there's, like, several local news stations at this place where we go. And but one of the interesting things, there was this little pass-through thing in the, in the gate. It's probably to push you know, to push your papers through so they can see it mm-hmm. or something. It was just a small opening. And so we didn't have to pitch the stuff over the fence <laughs> or stand on the roof of her car. But anyway, we pushed the stuff through there and, and we could see because these news cameras had their, you know, their lights going, you know, how they do. And so, you know, we could kind of see, we could see silhouettes mostly, but there was quite a few people there with quite a number of kids. So, we went back and got some more supplies, some more sandwiches and water and some blankets and took it back over. I don't know if it was enough for all of them, but we heard that later on, it was either that night or the next morning, that some local unfriendlies had gone near that place with rifles pointing at people, but there was no violence. Just We didn't hear about any violence. It was just you know, just the fact that they did that was kind of scary. But finally, in the morning, the Border Patrol did pick them up. And so I guess they probably started their asylum process then. Over the holidays, there's a story on Democracy Now! where authorities in El Paso, Texas, had to scramble to find uh, basically shelter for uh, immigrants that were just suddenly released by ICE outside of a Greyhound bus terminal. Is that right. happening anymore? Um, I guess once in a while we find one or two and um, the group again and that's how I found this place to volunteer at was I saw that article and they mentioned Annunciation House um, and that they had 
They didn't know why they hadn't called him. They've been working with ICE for years, and they usually always call him. But for some reason, on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th of December, they decided to do that. And so they had to scramble to find places to put all these people. There was like a 1,000 people over these three days uh, total. And so they ended up, um, I don't know, they got some anonymous, great, wonderful person donated a bunch of money, and they were able to rent hotel rooms for these folks. And they were, a lot of them were coming in, a lot of it was coming in on Christmas Eve, and the people that worked in the hotels, I mean, they weren't volunteers, they really didn't know anything about this, but they saw these little kids coming in on Christmas Eve. So a lot of them called their spouses and said, hey, run to Walmart and get some little cars and some coloring books and, you know, some just some little things so they would have something to give give to them on Christmas. And I thought that was such a wonderful, wonderful... The people, the people in El Paso are incredible. In your experience volunteering on the border, have there been any positive stories? Okay, well, I had this one thing happen the other morning that was so sweet. I was I ha- I took this family just a dad and this little girl she was seven you know you know how seven year olds they don't have any little teeth in the front but she was so cute and we went to the airport to get the their, their tickets and there was uh, a bad storm um, somewhere else and there was all these flights had been canceled so there's just this big long line and we're in it the lady that's in front of me she she starts talking to me and. Um, we're talking about everything and she's got a little girl with her and the little girl has got this unicorn that's about three feet high it's a big purple unicorn with a pink horn and a crown and she's holding this thing and um, so this lady and I are talking and at one point she asked asked the man she can see that I'm with him and she asked him where he's from and and he says Guatemala and and all I said to her about about it was I said yeah they've been through a lot and then we didn't have any more conversation about them and we're still working our way towards the front of the line and so finally we're almost up to the front and the little girl that's with the woman that I'm talking to she comes over to the little girl and she gives her the uniform she asks here do you want this and the little girl is just oh my gosh it was so sweet I started crying so then as just as they went to get to the there were the next people to go up to the ticket counter the grandma of this group says to her she says to me she goes do they have any money and i said oh no i said but we send a, a nice lunch with them and snacks and everything so they have um food for, till they get to their family so she you know reaches in grabs the money wraps it up hands it to the dad and says here you know take this thing you won't be broke on your trip and and so we're saying goodbye at the ticket counter wall, hugging and crying at the same time. It was such a beautiful moment. It just tells you how these people here in El Paso are, are so in tune with what is going on. I mean, their hearts are in tune with this, with the humanitarian part of this. Is there anything else that you want to leave KBU listeners with? Gosh, oh, let me think. I don't know. Just soften your heart and reach out. That's that's something that we can all use. The, the other thing that people could do is to contact their congressmen and their senators and tell them they need to they need to address this humanitarian crisis. Yeah, two things. One is there's the Eighth Amendment, which is um, it it says that we're not allowed to torture people, and then the other thing is that there's every state has rules about how children should be treated and i think the way these kids are be t- being treated is is and i'm a i'm an rn also so i'm what they call a mandatory reporter i believe that this is is neglect and abuse of these children and so i think that maybe we could you know maybe there's a possibility of going at it from that angle you know to get um of course the state of texas would have to to take that up but you know if there's enough people out there yelling and screaming maybe something will happen my guest has been kathy mariah carlson she's volunteering with annunciation house in el paso texas and trying to aid all the ice detainees that are released from ice custody thank you for joining us on the heather mccoy show thank you 
It's the Heather McCoy Show. It's K-Boo. Thanks for listening. You're tuned in to K-Boo Community Radio. Coming up at 11 is the premiere of Express Yourself. But first, according to the United States Center for Disease Control, we're in the middle of an obesity epidemic. With some thoughts on that, here's KBU Serena Amani Korn. What is officially the biggest health crisis in American history? Obesity is the biggest threat to public health. Many times you look in the mirror and you don't even recognize your own self. Obesity is epidemic in the United States. Obesity. Obesity. Obesity ballooned into something dangerous. Americans keep getting fatter. Obesity is crisis. Obesity. If you've turned on a TV or picked up a newspaper in the last two decades, chances are you know we're in the middle of an epidemic. An epidemic of obesity, as the Center for Disease Control claims. Because of this supposed epidemic threatening our lives, our culture has launched a full-on war on fat. The constant attack of weight loss ads is evident enough. And each year, the United States spends an estimated $45 billion in weight loss products. Friends, here's an amazing free offer for everyone who's overweight. You can still lose ugly fat fast. Get Calimetric Reducing Formula at your drugstore. What primetime specials and Oprah commercials don't show you is that there are real people on the other side of this war, and they're being targeted for being big. This war on fatness, validated by the supposed concern for health, has led to discrimination and abuse of fat people, or as the Center for Disease Control commonly refers to as overweight or obese persons. What are the human costs of the war on fat? What does it feel like to be bullied and discriminated against because of your size? Recent evidence shows that this war on fat, including the patronizing education and constant ridicule, is actually damaging to health and well-being, both physically and emotionally. Before we move any further, I need to address the word fat. 
It's okay. You can say it out loud. Fat. It's not a bad word. I use this word in part to replace the traditionally used overweight or obese. These words can be alienating and they refer to a pathology, which fatness just isn't. Fat is a word being reclaimed by people of size, like Andrea Eichelman, self-described as fat and gay. I think identifying as fat is a form of its own empowerment rather than just being fat or being seen as fat. Owning what that means for you in this world, how you're treated in this world versus letting it happen to you is really important. Being able to own that and say, I am fat, is to actually be able to say, like, yeah, I am. So what? You can be fat and be pretty. You can be fat and you can be attractive. You can be fat and you can be anything. Being fat doesn't stop you from having to be anything else. It's appalling that fat people have to make statements about their worth as human beings. But fat people are commonly viewed as lazy, unmotivated, incompetent, and sloppy. These stereotypes, perpetuated through media and even the healthcare system, help contribute to the stigma of being fat. Over time, these stereotypes haven't changed. Weight-related prejudice and discrimination in the U.S. increased 66% over 10 years, between 1999 and 2009, especially in areas of employment, healthcare, and education, as well as in interpersonal relationships. Healthcare is a particularly damaging area to face weight bias. Fat patients don't just experience prejudice or rude comments, but poor treatment. Sometimes symptoms aren't treated or even addressed until a fat person has been told to lose weight, even though there is very little evidence that proves losing weight positively affects health. Fat people often delay or completely avoid preventative care due to fear of being mistreated or humiliated by doctors and nurses. Being fat and going to the doctor is exhausting. It is utterly exhausting to have to go to a doctor and be just constantly vigilant about what are we treating? What are we looking at? Are they hearing me? Do you actually hear my complaint? Are you telling me that this will be fixed with weight loss? I was having this terrible pain in my ankle and I went in to the ER and they're like, well, you're fat. As if this was some sort of diagnosis and A, to be told you don't know your body and then B, to be denied any sort of care for it other than lose weight is terrible. Despite what the traditional argument claims, the war against fatness isn't about health or making people healthy. People don't scream, hey, fatty, and snort like a pig at you on the street because they're concerned about your health. Susan Greenhog, anthropologist at Harvard University, argues that fat hatred has more to do with moral and political inclusion and the idea of citizenship, where thin people are deserving and fat people are undeserving of inclusion. As bio-citizens, our duties are to diet, exercise, and maintain normal weight ourselves and to use fat talk to persuade others to do the same. First, informative or pedagogical fat talk, and then, if that doesn't work, abusive fat talk designed to shame them into losing weight. This shame and abuse also has serious impact on emotional well-being, which is incredibly important to our health. With ridicule from friends, doctors, and the media, often comes feelings of shame, guilt, and inadequacy. Sometimes fat people start to internalize and believe the stereotypes that we're lazy, gross, and undeserving of love. Some studies show that weight bias may also increase links to depression, low self-esteem, disordered eating, and poor body image. Sociologist Victoria Pitts-Taylor claims that no matter what size a person is, a body-positive image is an important part of being healthy. A poor body image is unhealthy. Feeling good about ourselves surely helps us care about ourselves better. Feeling bad about ourselves doesn't make this easier. Inside every overweight woman is a woman she knows she can be. Despite what weight loss ads tell you, I do care about my health. Loving ourselves is essential to our positive health. So in a world where everyone seems to want me to hate myself and my body, I've chosen to believe the radical notion that all bodies are beautiful. Fat bodies are beautiful. It's okay to be fat. Life is too short to hate yourself. <sighs> You have one body. And there's really only so much you can do with one body. That's all we have. And to think that you're going to spend your entire life 
wishing you were someone else is horrifying. Treating my fat body with love and compassion has allowed me to live a happier life. I can get dressed every day without tracing my stretch marks and thinking about how much I hate myself. Instead of standing in front of the mirror disgusted by my own body, I can gaze at my reflection with admiration. is a proud co-sponsor of the Feminist Film Night and Planned Parenthood fundraiser on Friday, August 16th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. 
This Planned Parenthood fundraiser will screen A Girl Like Her, which tells the hidden history of over a million young women who became pregnant in the 1950s and 60s and were banished to maternity homes to give birth and surrender their babies for adoption. And Jane, an abortion service, a documentary of Jane. The Chicago-based women's health group performed nearly 12,000 safe illegal abortions between 1969 and 1973. There will be a conversation after the films between a former Jane, Judith Arcana, and a girl like her, Lonnie Jo Lee. Again, that's the Feminist Film Night and Planned Parenthood fundraiser on Friday, August 16th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 11 o'clock. Coming up next, it's the premiere of Express Yourself. Host Jai interviews spoken word artist Izzy Israel and Jess. Don't forget that you can hear all of these programs after they air on KBOO.FM or on iTunes and Google Play. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to KBOO.FM or use our mobile app and click on Donate. It's your guy, Izzy Israel, here with the Express Yourself Show. Holla at your boy. Yeah! up everybody you are now listening to kboo portland 90.7 you are now tuned in to express yourself i'm your host jai and today i'm so 